Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Fun Factory, written and read by Chris England. Chapter 15. Let me call you sweetheart. I stewed on this new development for the next few days. Well, there was nobody I could talk to about it, since Tilly had told me not to tell anyone, and she herself remained elusive, avoiding another conversation on the matter. At the weekend, we embarked for one of the longest boxcar hauls of the whole tour, a gruelling 18 hours down to Sacramento, with a a 6am start. Plenty of time to think. Tilly was soon deep in conversation with Amy, Muriel and Emily, married women all, of course. I figured she hadn't announced that she was contemplating marrying herself, or else that corner would have been a whole lot noisier, and I didn't spot a single furtive sidelong glance at Mr Melroyd either, so I didn't think she'd sworn them to secrecy. Charlie had his unofficial bodyguard beside him, and the two of them were already on the lookout for hog farms. The card game was not yet underway, and most of the other lads were dozing, trying to catch up on lost kip. Frank was snoozing, his hands clasped over his paunch, and he didn't look to me like a man whose hopes had been dashed. What to do? Should I be making a counter-proposal? Was that what Tilly wanted? Was that what I wanted? What would that mean to my ambitions? I couldn't be sure, and turned it over and over in my mind as we trundled down through Oregon. It was a good couple of hours before Tilly got up to stretch her legs, and I followed her out onto the observation platform. She was lost in thought, the wind tossing her blonde curls this way and that, the chill bringing a lovely pinkness to her soft cheeks. I stood and watched her for a long moment before she realised I was there. "'Oh, Arthur, it's you,' she said with a little start. I leaned on the railing next to her. "'That was a good long talk you were having with the girls,' I said. "'Well, it's a long trip, this one, isn't it, so I had to kill off some of it somehow. "'What were you discussing?' "'Oh, they were just telling me about married life, the practical things.' Usually they don't talk about that when I'm with them. In fact, if they start up with their moaning, it's usually me who changes the subject. But today I was interested. What were they saying then? She laughed. You would have expired from boredom hours ago. No, tell me. I want to hear. Well, George and Emily have been working as a couple for Carno for donkey's years, you know, touring 52 weeks a year, no home, no family, but they love it. It's the life for them. I think Muriel Palmer rather fancies giving it all up sooner or later and having children, but Fred thinks George is his hero just at the moment and wants to be like him, so there's a storm a-brewing there. Amy and Alf, well, they've got it made, haven't they? As long as he's working, she's working. Tilly, you're not actually thinking about accepting Frank's offer, are you? Frank is a gentleman, and he's done me a great honour. Oh, my God, you are thinking about it, aren't you? What happened to not being tied down? What happened to flying free? It's a serious proposition. Don't you think it deserves serious consideration? I suppose so, but, well, that's what I'm doing. Tilly, listen, there's something I want to ask you. She closed her eyes, put her hand up to stop me. No, Arthur, don't. You don't know what I'm going to say. Yes, yes, I do, and I don't want you to say it. Well, why not? 
because I couldn't accept you, could I? I'd always be thinking you'd only ask me to keep me from marrying Frank, and that I'd trapped you, put you on the spot, and you'd always be wondering whether your career was being held back because you were part of a pair. No, I wouldn't. Yes, you would. Do you think George Seaman is ever going to be a number one? No, but he's not funny enough. It's nothing to do with Emily hanging round his neck like an albatross. Tilly? Please, Arthur, don't. Just don't. And if you don't mind, I'd like to be alone for a little while. But, please, Arthur. There was nothing to do but traipse back through the props to the seating compartment and my thoughts. Melroyd was still asleep, and I watched him bitterly. I should have seen it before, of course. I wondered briefly whether telling him about Tilly's, shall we say, unconventional morality might put a spanner in the works, but I decided that wouldn't put him off. He was smitten, smitten to the point of obsession. I remembered walking with Tilly in Central Park, thinking I'd spotted Frank before he disappeared behind a fountain. Was he following us? Watching us? I remembered now Frank grabbing that heavy oar from Stan during the wow-wows and swinging it furiously at my head. Maybe that wasn't a new bit of business. Maybe it was jealousy. Then in Chicago he'd seen a burlesque girl leaving my room in my coat, and then later Tilly handing me my coat back, and had put two and two together, and it was shortly after that that his clumsiness had almost catapulted me off the back of the boxcar, at high speed, and in the middle of a frozen wilderness, probably teeming with bears and wolves and what have you. Good God, I suddenly thought, with a chill creeping into my bones, that could have been the end of me. And was that really an accident? Or had he really tried to shove me off the back of the boxcar? Surely not, I thought. That would be craziness. But then, during the Harlequinade, he'd wallop Charlie with a truncheon, hadn't he? Charlie was the one spending all his time with Tilly then, swooning over her, pitching woo as Harlequin to her columbine, with Tilly lapping that stuff up. God knows I'd felt like thumping Charlie then myself. Perhaps that wasn't an accident either. It hit me like a thunderclap. The fellow was off his rocker. He had to be stopped. And the more I thought about it, the more I realised... There was only one man who could help me. At various times during the journey, we would make our way, one or two at a time, through to the Southern Pacific California Express that was hauling us southwards in order to take advantage of the restaurant car. Stan and Freddy got peckish early and beckoned me to join them, but I had other ideas and bided my time. Eventually, I saw Ralph Lose nudge Charlie and suggest that it was time to eat, and he agreed. I got to my feet as well and followed them, falling in behind Charlie's big Texan bodyguard. As we reached the restaurant car, I tapped him on the shoulder. "'I say, Ralph,' I said. He turned and loomed over me. "'I think I heard your fellow trapeze boy, Sterling, say he wanted a quick word with you.' "'Oh,' he said. "'Right.' And he squeezed past me and lumbered back the way we'd come. I found Charlie had already taken a seat at one of the tables by a picture window and was gazing out at a wide river we were riding alongside, the track raised up above the bank on a sort of trestle viaduct. I slipped smartly in opposite him. Charlie, I said. He jumped so violently I thought he was going to fall off his chair. His expressive features registered his shock and his inward cursing at having allowed himself to be taken by surprise, followed by resignation and a grim determination to give a good account of himself. I had to suppress a snigger, as if I would start a fist-fight in a restaurant car. Really. Arthur, he said, managing to collect himself. Where's... He'll be along in a minute, I said, and Charlie visibly relaxed. I told him there were hogs in one of the other carriages. Charlie absorbed that. So, are you joining us for luncheon? he said. Thank you, no, I said. I just wanted to let you know something, something you should be aware of, as the number one. He frowned. And what is that? 
You remember when Frank Melroyd gave you that whack on the head? Yes. What of it? An accident, you think? Of course. It was only our second performance of the Harlequinade. Naturally, there were one or two bumps we would have ironed out, given a fair chance. What about it? I decided to cut right to it. He has proposed to Tilly. What? Frank Melroyd has proposed marriage to Tilly. Charlie gaped at me in open astonishment. What? But I had no idea they were... They're not. They're not? No. But he's still... Between you and me, I think he might be crackers. Charlie's fingers crept up to the bump that was still visible on the side of his head, and he nodded thoughtfully. What has she said, do you know? She's considering. I guess she doesn't want to hurt his feelings, but sooner or later the situation will need to be resolved, and there will likely be consequences to company morale one way or another, so I thought you should know what was happening so that you are prepared. As the number one. Thanks. Thanks, Arthur, Charlie murmured, frowning. Decent of you. Just then Lose appeared. "'Say,' he said, "'what gives? "'Sterling didn't want to speak to me. "'He was fast asleep.' "'My mistake,' I said. "'I'll leave you two to it.' "'I made my way back to the boxcar "'with a little bit of a spring in my step "'for the first time in days. "'Maybe the two of them would kill each other off "'and save me the bother. "'And I didn't have too long to wait. "'The next morning, "'when we assembled for the band call "'at the Empress in Sacramento, "'Alf Reeves gathered us together "'for a little announcement. "'Some of you may have noticed,' he began, "'that Frank Melroyd is not with us today.' He's left the company to pursue opportunities elsewhere, and left town this morning, heading for Salt Lake and then the East. He wanted me to pass on his very best wishes to you all, and apologise on his behalf that he was not able to say his goodbyes. This means some reorganisation, of course, to cover for him, so let me see. He got on with moving people around, reallocating parts and bits of business, but I wasn't really listening. I was watching Tilly, who was staring at Alf with a look of sandbagged astonishment and Charlie, who was looking serious, but barely managing to hide a satisfied half-smile. That was bloody quick work, I thought. Relieved though I undoubtedly was at the departure of the problematical Melroyd, the speed and efficiency of his dispatch did make me acutely aware that Charlie was not only ruthlessly wielding his power as the number one, but also making very clear his own ambitions where Tilly was concerned. Time, I reckoned, to press on with my scheme to put him in his place, time to let him know that I would not be so easy to shove aside. To that end, I spent every spare minute that week practising with a trio of doves that I'd managed to acquire from a pet store, and by the time we moved on to San Francisco, with my dove basket cunningly concealed in the boxcar, I felt I was ready for Mr Houdini's trick to make its debut. <laughs> Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. 
That's stamps.com code program. Chapter 16 The Sigh of a Dove. San Francisco, Gateway to the Orient. It was only five years after the great earthquake had destroyed more than three-quarters of the city, and yet the reconstruction had been so energetic that, apart from a couple of alarming cracks in the roads here and there, you would hardly know anything had happened. In point of fact, the locals referred to the catastrophe as the Great Fire, as far more damage was done by flames than by the tremors. The city burned for four days as the quake ruptured gas pipes all over the place, and the rumour was that many conflagrations had been started on purpose by people who found that their property insurance did not cover earthquake damage, but did cover fire. No one you spoke to would admit to having done this, but all reckoned they knew someone who had. We were at the Empress Theatre, a new building, of course, recently opened by one Sid Grauman and his father. The big sign out front proclaimed it was the city's first completely fireproof theatre, when I remarked on this to Grauman on our arrival, he was matter-of-fact about it all. We lost the unique and the lyceum in the disaster, but we set up business again right away in a big tent, using the pews from a collapsed church for the audience to sit on, and the sign we had then said, Nothing but canvas to fall on your head if there is a shake. He was a character, Sid Grauman, a little clown-haired live-wire. He and his father had made their pile in Dawson City during the Klondike Gold Rush, not actually striking gold themselves, but providing entertainment for those who did. Now they were riding the vaudeville wave, with two other new theatres in San Francisco, the Imperial and the New National, and further interests in San Jose and Los Angeles. So, which one of you guys is Fred Carno? That's what I want to know. Where's the star? Charlie explained that Mr. Carno was back in London at his base, the Fun Factory. Grauman frowned. In London, you say? So why was I told to put his name on the poster? Who wants to know who the producer in London is? People want to know the name of the star. We've got Fred Carno Jr. with us, I said, pushing Freddy forwards. The great man's son. A cowboy act, Grauman said, peering at the hat Freddy had been given by Considine. I am the star, Charlie said then, stepping forwards and shoving Freddy and me back into the ranks. Charles Chaplin, at your service. Now, you see, that's good to know, Grauman said. Next time you come, let's make sure it's your name on the poster. Grand idea, Mr. Grauman, Charlie beamed. Oh, Sid, call me Sid. Mr. Grauman's my father. Grauman chatted away about the ins and outs of entertainment in a big cosmopolitan city, and then disappeared to keep his finger on the pulse of activities in his other two theatres. One gem I picked up from his chit-chat, however, was that the reviewers from the newspapers would be attending the second show, and so I decided to keep my powder dry until then. So after a routine first performance for a warmly appreciative audience, and a couple of quick stiffeners in the saloon next door, I slipped up to the roof, where I'd stashed my dove basket. I aimed a kick at a local moggy who was taking an unwelcome interest in my co-star, and opened the lid. Now, I don't know if it was the presence of the cat or the stress of the journey, but the birds were unusually skittish, and whichever one I'd been rehearsing with had managed to kick off the little band I'd placed round its ankle to mark it out from the other two, the understudies. I wondered momentarily whether to abort the whole thing, but the memory of Chaplin pushing past me, saying, I am the star, drove me on. I grabbed the dove which looked the least stark-staring mad, shoved it under my jacket into my armpit, fastened the basket lid, and scampered back down the stairs. Houdini had assured me that once a dove was in position, as it were, it would be placid, 
but I seem to have chosen one with advanced stage fright. As I took my place alongside Tilly and the wings, the creature kept digging its claws into me. "'Do be still, Arthur,' Tilly hissed. "'Sorry,' I whispered, trying to calm the wretched bird, but what made matters worse was that the act on stage, standing in front of the tabs as our fake boxes were quietly moved into place and populated waiting for curtain up on the show within a show, was a monologist and whistler. Every time he whistled, my hidden companion wanted to join in. "'Whatever is the matter with you?' Tilly hissed again as I wriggled uncomfortably. "'You'll disturb the turn!' I nodded, but my inside pocket would not keep quiet. "'Jack Goldie, the whistling monologue guy,' Tilly whispered. "'What?' I whispered back. "'It's Jack Goldie!' "'I know it is. Oh, I thought you said who?' Mercifully, Goldie reached his whistling climax and exited to warm applause. The curtains rose to reveal the set for a night at an English music hall, and we were underway. Amy was on first as the saucy soubrette, then Bert Williams reciting the trail of the Yukon. Waiting in the wings, we could hear the laughs punctuating these items as the naughty boy tried to bounce a bun off Bert's head and the inebriated swell tumbled from his box. It was going well. Sounded like Chaplin was on good form. Albert Austin, the numbers man, raised his voice over the chaos on stage to announce, And now, Dr. Bunko, the celebrated prestidigitator par excellence! "'Woo!' went the crowd, accompanied by the lovely Selina, and Tilly and I strode out onto the apron. I saw Tilly giving me a funny look, and I must have been unusually hunched over, trying to keep the damned dove from breaking loose, but I managed to foul up the first couple of tricks in regulation fashion, and the audience were enjoying the scornful derision of the inebriated swell as he sidled up to me and tweaked my moustache. The joke, of course, was that I was a terrible magician, but the business was delivered with a pompousness and self-regard that the swell and the naughty boy could prick. We'd done it so many times that the act ran on greased rails. Soon enough we reached the climax of my act within the show within the show, and Tilly, my glamorous assistant, presented me with the dove pan. It was like the sort of platter you might be served in a fancy hotel, with a silver lid to keep the food warm. I showed it to the audience, as I had a hundred times, demonstrating that it was empty, then, with a bit of hocus-pocus and abracadabra, whisked the lid away right in front of the swell's nose. The trick was a vaudeville standby, of course, and the audience were well aware that a bird, or perhaps a rabbit, some sort of wildlife anyway, was meant to appear, so when a cloud of white feathers blew out of the lid, they knew perfectly well that something had gone wrong, and laughed heartily. This was then the cue for the swell to go into a sneezing jag on account of the feathers, and his sneezing would blow some of the feathers up so that they would get inside his shirt, and he would wriggle and twist around as they tickled him, and the poor prestidigitator and the lovely Selina would bow and scrape their way from the stage. Not tonight, though. Charlie had unleashed a sneeze or two, and was just beginning to work his comedy wriggle. Tilly was beaming a fixed smile and beginning to back away towards the wings, and Stan, the naughty boy, was trying to hit my top hat with an orange from the topmost box. I stepped forward, centre stage, and in a voice of unusual command, I bellowed, Wait! There was a hush. Charlie looked startled, and also in that moment, stone-cold sober. Tilly looked at me as though I'd gone mad. Stan was poised, wide-eyed, another orange clutched in his hand above his head. I knelt down on the stage, and very slowly, very gently, gathered all the feathers I could into a little pile. No one else on stage with me moved a muscle, not even Chaplin, and after the raucous rackets that had gone before, the audience could tell that something unexpected was happening, and they hushed. Carefully, 
I scooped the white feathers into my hands and gazed sorrowfully at them before clasping my hands together tightly and pulling them into my chest. "'Wait!' I said again. "'Look!' I felt the power then, that feeling that you have the audience, everyone in the room, hanging on your every move. The power makes you feel like you have all the time in the world. I took a moment to glance at Charlie, and he wrinkled his nose contemptuously, clearly having concluded that I was trying to wring some cheap sentiment out of the moment, and waiting to shoot me down. I looked at the audience, opened my hands, and released the dove exactly as Houdini had shown me. It was a special moment. The dove, making its stage debut, did not merely sit tamely on my hands, but opened its wings and soared around the auditorium above the heads of the crowd, who gasped in wonder. And when it finally returned to sit perfectly upon my finger, the place erupted in such cheering as I had never heard before. Best of all, though, was Chaplin's face, a picture of the frankest astonishment. I reached a hand out to the baffled Tilly so she could bow with me and share in the limelight, but she didn't seem to know where to put herself. As I bowed again and again, Chaplin suddenly came to himself and re-inhabited the inebriated swell. He came over to usher me from the stage, and the audience began to boo. They booed Chaplin. This was delicious, more even than I'd hoped for. He turned to look at them, and his bewildered expression clearly said, But don't you know who I am? I'm the star! I bowed once more, and then again, and then the dove and I departed the scene to more tumultuous applause. "'Well, thanks for telling me you were going to do that,' Tilly grumbled as we passed in the wings. "'I'm only supposed to be your assistant.' "'Sorry,' I mouthed with a grin, and gave her a quick peck on the cheek, as I slipped by on my way to returning the dove to the basket on the roof. In the green room afterwards there was a good deal of merry backslapping, to begin with, anyway. "'However did you do that?' Stan cried. "'Sorry, old son.' "'Sworn to secrecy by the Brotherhood of Prestidigitateurs,' I smirked. "'It was incredible. I knew I was supposed to throw an orange at your hat, "'but I just wanted to see what was going to happen next. What a surprise!' "'A couple of the older seen-it-all hands were affecting indifference, "'but by and large the whole company was buzzing. "'After all, when you've played the same show twenty-five times a week for five months straight, "'as we had, you welcome any little change just to break the monotony.' "'Then Charlie came in. He, surprised Sir Blinking Prize, was furious. Dando! There you are! Unbelievable! What on earth did you think you were doing? Just a bit of fun, I shrugged. Incredible! Incredible lack of professionalism, he spluttered. What do you mean? You try new bits all the time. Not like that! Not something that completely changes the nature of the sketch, and without telling anyone beforehand. I thought it would be a nice surprise, I said. And if I try something new, it is because I am the number one. I am the prime source of laughter out there. And anything I can do to enhance that is for the good of everyone. Maybe I'll try something on the spur of the moment. But always in character and always little touches. Grace notes. Not this premeditated sabotage. I mean, how long have you been practising that little stunt for, hmm? I held up my hands. Sworn to secrecy, I'm afraid. It was unbelievably unprofessional. <laughs> unprofessional am I? Well, at least I didn't take a night off to go to the opera while the company manager was out of town, not to mention persuading another member of the company to sneak off with you in the hope of stealing her away from me. A sneer formed on Charlie's face, but before he could retort, we heard, What's this? Everyone had been concentrating on the argument between me and Charlie, but now the company turned as one to see Alf Reeves in the doorway, a look like thunder on his face. 
"'Alf,' Charlie said, breaking the stunned silence with bluster. "'We were just talking about Dando's irresponsible behaviour, "'completely messing up tonight's performance.' "'Oh, come on,' said Stan, sticking up for me. "'It was a bit of fun, that's all, "'and you have to admit it was pretty incredible.' There was a low murmur of agreement, but nobody else wanted to pop their head above the parapet until they saw which way the wind was going to blow. It was remarkable, Alf conceded, but perhaps you should have cleared it with me first. Cleared it with you? What about me? I was on stage with him at the time. I am the number one of this company. He should have cleared it with me. Yes, well, what's done is done, isn't it? Alf said, trying to pour oil on troubled waters. But Chaplin was practically frothing at the mouth. He should be punished. He should be reduced to the ranks. He should be a super. That's all. No more than that. Alf stiffened. Now look, there's no need for that sort of talk, he said. I'm sure Arthur won't be pulling that stunt again. Now will you, Arthur? Whatever you say, Alf, I said, holding up my hands. Reasonableness itself. And that might have been an end of it, if only little Sid Graman hadn't come into the room at that moment, practically quivering with excitement. Fantastic, he cried. Fantastic. I've never seen anything like it. First you make the magician seem like an incompetent boob, and then suddenly, boom, he's a genius. So unexpected. Brilliant. I can hardly wait for tomorrow night. I'm telling everyone I know. Well, in point of fact, Alf said uncomfortably, that was by way of being a one-off performance. Graman blinked at him. What do you mean? Well, that's not what we normally do. That's not what's supposed to happen. Um... At that point. It was a mistake. Why? Whatever is supposed to happen? Is the bird meant to be dead? What? No, no, it's just... Arthur here took everyone by surprise, that's all. We didn't actually know he was capable of producing a dove like that. Ha-ha! That explains the looks on your faces. But he can do it again, surely. You can do it again. Alf looked at me, raised his eyebrows. I shrugged, nodded. Grauman beamed happily. Perfect. Then that is the show for this week. Can't drop an effect like that, you know. Especially not if it gets a mention in the Chronicle and in Billboard, which I am absolutely certain that it will. Excellent. The little theatre owner with the clown hairdo buzzed off then about his business, leaving Chaplin glaring at Alf Reeves. So, we're decided then, he said coolly. No more doves? Alf grimaced. <laughs> but... Well, you heard Mr. Grauman just now, and the Empress is his theatre after all. I think Arthur is going to have to keep doing the dove trick for the rest of this week, and then maybe after that we'll have a think about what's best. Chaplin seethed, but he was in a corner, and there was really nothing for him to do but grab his hat and coat and storm out. So that's what he did. Alf stared down at the floor and let out a heavy sigh. Then he looked straight at me and shook his head slowly, before turning to look at Amy, his wife, and Tilly, who were both looking mightily apprehensive. I felt bad for making Alf's life difficult, and I probably shouldn't have blurted out about Charlie's illicit operatic excursion. But as Freddy, Stan, Mike and the rest of my jovial colleagues swept me off to the next-door saloon bar to toast Dr. Bunko's magnificent success, I was in celebratory mood. After all, what was the worst that could happen?